morning, everybody. Um, good to see you guys this morning. We good on the mic? No, yes. It's a new, new mic. mic. There we go. All right, there we go. Um, well, good morning. Uh, good to see you guys this morning. This morning, we're going to be working through Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. Uh, Hebrews 7 and 8 are um, a collection of pretty dense, uh, even convoluted passages, I think. There's just a, a lot there. Um, one of my favorite parts about preaching, and Ben and I talk about this all the time, is not necessarily the act of preaching. But it's sort of the lead up to preaching when you're studying and you're working through the text and you're trying to figure out what's really going on here. What's the Holy Spirit trying to communicate? Uh, what's the author all about? And, uh, and normally that feels like an adventure, like you're going on an adventure through the text to figure those things out. And this week, it didn't really feel like that. It felt more like I was wrestling a bear and getting kicked in the knee the entire time. Um, but that doesn't mean that God's Word doesn't have something uh, good for us and important for us, even in these chapters that are pretty dense. So I'm going to pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll move on from there. God, thank you for the opportunity to be present this morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to already hear from your word, to sing together, to worship together, to meet you in this place. And God, over the next few minutes as we dive into your word, I pray that what you would have for us would be clear. I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds. God, that we would meet with you in this place, that we would uh, have clarity from your word, that we would draw near to you because of it. God, thank you for Jesus, our Savior. God, thank you for the good news of the gospel that we're going to see this morning. And God, over the, the next few minutes, I pray that um, Jesus would be lifted high in such a way that we would be drawn to you, that we would hear from you. And God, we ask all this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. As we get started this morning, let me ask you this question uh, to begin with. What is the Bible to you? Because on one hand, uh, if we're honest, the Bible is sometimes this weird, ancient book with some crazy stories that is often confusing and at times maybe seems irrelevant to our lives. And then on the other hand, we know that the Bible is God's revelation to man. It's the story of God creating, the story of the fall, and then the story of God renewing all things. But to you personally, what is the Bible? Is it a collection of stories that teach us how to be moral? Is it, a, is it the thing we use to justify our doctrines and beliefs? The, the proof text we use to say this is what it means to live or to be a Christian? Maybe it's just a collection of stories and writings that somebody put together that really hold no meaning for you when it comes down to, when it, comes down to it. The Alliance, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, our denomination, says this about the Bible 
The Old and New Testaments, inerrant as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men. They constitute the divine and only rule of Christian faith and practice. Our own redemption statement of faith says this, we believe the Bible to be the inspired, the only infallible, authoritative word of God. But with all that said, there's something else I think that's true and good about the Bible. Something that I believe is true about the Bible, and it's this. The Bible is God's story of his redemptive work throughout history to relate to his creation. The story of God relating to his creation, right? The, the reality of the fact, I believe, is that God is a God of relationships who has acted throughout history to bring about and to foster our relationship with him and his relationship with us. From the very beginning of the Bible with the creation story, uh, we see that God is going about creating a place to meet with and dwell with and move into and rest with his creation. I don't have a lot of time to flesh that idea out, but when the ancient Israelites would have heard the creation story, that God created and then that God rested, part of what they would have heard was that God was moving into his dwelling place, that he was moving into the place where he was going to rest and dwell, into the temple that he had created, the temple of creation. And that God would dwell there and meet with his people there and have a place to live with his people. It would be no exaggeration to to characterize the Bible as this long interconnected network of texts about relationships. From Adam and Eve to the first five books of the Bible, where God defines how his people are to relate to him and to one another and to the world around them, Right to other stories throughout Scripture, David and Jonathan, James and John, Paul and Barnabas, all the way to the author of Hebrews and the congregation that the author is writing to and addressing. All of it is set within the context of relationships. And behind all of these stories, behind all of that's going on throughout Scripture, there's God working and acting to bring people into a right relationship with him and with one another. And this morning, as we look at Hebrews 7 and 8, I think the concept of relationships, and specifically God relating to his people, is pretty central to understand what's happening in these two chapters. In the larger context of this letter or sermon that we know as the book of Hebrews, the overarching theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better in every way. As you'll recall, the letter was written primarily to Jewish believers who had professed faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, but who were undoubtedly facing persecution because of that belief. And so there was probably this temptation to seek safety and shelter under the old ways of doing things. And that temptation to seek safety and shelter under the old ways was probably pretty powerful. And so the author throughout the book of Hebrews is committed to convincing the people that he's addressing that it would be spiritually insane to return to their former ways because Jesus is better in every way. And specifically in the book of Hebrews, I can't emphasize enough how much the Old Testament covenants, 
that God made with his people and formed the book of Hebrews because the author of Hebrews is constantly making the argument, repeatedly making the argument that Jesus is better than the old ways, that Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of all those things. And as good and helpful as those old practices and old ways and old principles of the Mosaic Law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, those things were temporary, and they were designed to point to something better. That something better is Jesus. It's not that those things were bad. It's just that the author is saying Jesus is better. Understanding some of those things about the Old Testament, about the Mosaic Law and temple worship and the role of the priest and the role of the high priest and all of those things is vital to grasping the argument that the author is making in this part of Hebrews. And where we find ourselves this morning in the book of Hebrews, like I said in chapters 7 and 8, the author is very specifically making an argument that Jesus is a better high priest. That's what he, the argument that he, he sort of, that sort of culminates in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, there's this argument that Jesus has established a better covenant than the one that Moses had established with God's people on Sinai. Right? So the argument is Jesus is a better high priest, and Jesus has established a better covenant. And I'll work through both of those ideas. We're going to start in chapter 7, um, where I said, like, where, like I said, the author is making the argument that Jesus is a better high priest. And then we'll move on to chapter 8 in a minute. But we have to start with this, and, and it's remembering that in the Old Testament, the high priest, even in New Testament times when Jesus was there, the high priest was the chief mediator between God and man. The high priest stood between God and his people. The high priest was the gateway to God in a sense. And all the way back at the beginning of this book, the author set in the motion this argument that Jesus is the better high priest. And in some ways, unlike the people of the first century who are hearing this argument, you and I today will probably have a hard time relating to the significance of this passage. But we've got to remember, and I can't emphasize it enough, and it's why I'm saying it again, how central and controlling and all-consuming the priesthood established by Moses was to the lives of everyday first century Jewish men and women. It's hard to overestimate how important temple worship was to first century Jewish people because it was God's way of dealing with sin, helping them to see that they can't do it on their own, and the priests were the key to it all. Everything they knew about God and their relationship to him and how they could be forgiven of their sins was based on this priestly system of worship from the Old Covenant. And here in Hebrews, the author is making the argument that the Levitical priesthood put in place by Moses has been set aside and fulfilled by Jesus. The old ways were but a foreshadowing of something better and greater. And in some ways, that would have been a life-altering truth, world-shaking truth for early Jewish believers. But Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10, that's where we're going to start. I'm going to read through it. We'll talk about it for a little bit. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. 
He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also were descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What does any of that have to do with us and how we relate to God. But hang with me for a moment. Melchizedek is this character from the Old Testament that is really only referenced in two places in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he's talked about more in the book of Hebrews than he is in the Old Testament. But Melchizedek, we see him in two places in the Old Testament. One is in Genesis chapter 14, and one is in Psalm 110. But in Genesis 14, Abraham has gone out to fight some invading kings and uh, the reason that he's gone out to fight them ultimately is because his nephew Lot had been captured by them. So Abraham has gone out to fight them. He's rescued Lot. He's on his way home. He's been victorious. And he runs into two people, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. And we see this in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's really all we know about Melchizedek right there. But there are a couple things to note. Melchizedek was a priest of God. We don't know how this is the case. Because it's actually before, like the author has made, like the argument the author has made, this is actually before Moses has established the Levitical priesthood through Aaron. But somehow, this guy is a priest of God, God Most High. He's also the king of Salem. Uh, Salem was probably what became Jerusalem later on in the Bible. And he comes out and he blesses Abraham for his victory. And then Abraham ties him 10% of everything that he has, the spoils that he's bringing back, right? So we know of Melchizedek that he's a priest. We know of Melchizedek that he's a king. Those are roles that are not usually filled by the same person. Uh, you see in the Old Testament, sometimes David fills the role of a priest, even though he wasn't one. But ultimately, the fact that Melchizedek is a priest and king sort of points to Jesus, right? The whole point of Melchizedek is to point to Jesus, and that's part of the argument that the, that the author of Hebrews is making anyway. This priest-king figure from the Old Testament is a, is a type pointing to Jesus. 
But the author is making the argument, the author of Hebrews is making the argument that Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. He's the chief patriarch. It all began with him. It all comes from him. But there's someone even greater than Abraham. Because Abraham tithed 10% to this person. Because Abraham was blessed by this person. Because Abraham recognized him as greater by tithing him, by tithing to him. And Hebrews author also makes the argument um, that Melchizedek is described in the text as not having any genealogy, that he lives and that he continues to live, which is also a pointer later on in Hebrews chapter 7 to how Jesus still lives as a priest forever. And so just like how Melchizedek was greater than Abraham through whom the priest came, Jesus, too, is greater than the Old Testament priest and the Old Testament ways of sin being forgiven and a right relationship with God being established. That's ultimately the argument that's being made here and through the rest of chapter 7. Melchizedek was outside the system that these Jewish believers would have known, but the author of Hebrews makes the argument that he's greater. The inference as well is that Jesus is outside the system they knew. He's the culmination of it all. He's the fulfillment of it all. But Jesus is better. And that's the key here. Something outside, something different is greater and better. If we go on through chapter 7, the author continues to make the argument that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priest. And he basically does that in four movements. The first movement is found in verses 11 through 19. I'm just going to read Hebrews 7, 11, where it says this, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Part of what the author, part of the argument that the author is making here is that perfection actually couldn't be attained through the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. And when he talks about perfection not being attainable, what he's getting at is like it couldn't come to its ultimate fulfillment. It couldn't come to its stated end. It couldn't come to fruition. What the Old Testament priests were bringing, that way of worship, couldn't actually end at the desired end in the same way that Jesus could bring something to a stated end, and to perfection. Verse 19 specifically says that Jesus introduced a better hope through which we can draw near to God, a better hope, ultimately, than the Old Testament priest could deliver for drawing near to God. That's the first argument he makes. The second argument he makes, the second movement, is seen in verses 20 through 22. I'll read those. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The argument here is essentially that the Old Testament priests were essentially priests because of their lineage because the tribe that they were a part of, because, of, of, um, because of, of their ancestors, simply because they were from Levi. 
But the argument the author here is making is that Jesus is a better guarantor of a relationship with God because God has said Jesus is going to be the better high priest. God has made an oath that Jesus will forever be a high priest that is better. Therefore, Jesus is better. God has decreed it, so it will be. That's the second movement. The third movement for why Jesus is a better high priest is in verses 23 through 25, where it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The argument is simply this. The Old Testament priest died. Jesus never will. Jesus is better because he will live forever, and he will always be there to make intercession for his people. He will save to the uttermost because he's always there. He's not going anywhere. The fourth movement for why Jesus is a better high priest is seen in verses 26 through 28. It says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Part of the argument here, or the essence of the argument in these verses, is that Jesus is a better high priest because he doesn't have to continually offer sacrifices for his own sin and for the sins of God's people because he is the once for all uttermost sacrificed for God's people. Jesus is better because Jesus was perfect. Jesus perfectly made a way for God's people to relate to God. He is that sacrifice that could bring to perfection what the Old Testament way of worship could not. That's the argument being made in those last sections of verses. Now that is a lot, right, in, in chapter 7. It's just so much that we just walked through that you could spend so much time on. But what I want to take away from all of that, the, the, the thing that I want to dive in on, is that I just want you to think about the practical implications of everything I just worked through so quickly. It's a convoluted argument that the author is making, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just a dense argument. It's based on a lot of things that have come before but the practical implications of everything in chapter 7 is that God has brought about and God has put in place the means by which we can have a lasting relationship with God and God can have a lasting relationship with us. God is the initiator of the relationship. That's what we see in chapter 7. That God wants to dwell with his people just like he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. God is the guarantor of our relationship with him because Jesus is the assurance that we will forever be in a covenant relationship with God. What greater assurance is there than what Jesus has done? God has put in place the means to defeat our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death, and he's done that through the victory won by Jesus on the cross and with his resurrection. 
God has put in place Jesus to be our intercessor. Jesus is literally standing in the gap for me and you. Those are the practical implications of chapter 7. Regardless of how difficult it is to understand, regardless of how weird the character of Melchizedek is, the practical implications is that God has done something so that we will be related to him in a very personal and intimate way. It reminds me of Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, at the end of Luke chapter 2, there's the story of where Jesus is predicting Peter's eventual denial before the crucifixion. But Jesus says to Peter, after he says, you're going to deny me, he says this, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus tells Peter that Peter is going to fail, but then he says, Peter, I've prayed for you, and you will turn back to me, and when you do, strengthen your brothers. What better hope for us than Jesus interceding on our behalf? The stuff in Hebrews is dense and the arguments are, are, are difficult to work through, but the end of it all is a Savior who makes a way for us to boldly stand before God, a Savior who repeatedly, continually, and will always be praying for us, that's astounding, right? That's incredible. A Savior constantly in the gap for you and I. It's amazing. Chapter 7 makes the argument that Jesus is a better high priest, and that's the practical implication of that. But he's also the guarantor of a better covenant. We see that in chapter 7, which leads us over to Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, I'm going to look at Hebrews in two bites. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 in two bites. First part fairly quickly before focusing on the second part. But the first part is this, Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary Excuse me. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. There are two things to note here, really three things. First off, Jesus' covenant is better. It was in there a lot in that short passage. Um, second thing is this. In verses 1 and 2, the author is really making a transition away from this discourse about Jesus as the high priest and turning to a discourse about Jesus having the better covenant. And then in verses 3 through 6, he's essentially making the point that everything about the structured temple worship from the Old Testament, the structured tabernacle worship that became temple worship and so forth, was just a pointer to something 
better. Jesus is better. It wasn't meant to last. Its intent was to point to Jesus who established a better covenant and a better way for God to relate to people and people to relate to God. That's what Hebrews 8 is about. So now, Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he, finds, for he finds fault with it when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Verses 8 through 12 here are a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. It's one of the longest quotes in the uh, New Testament from the Old Testament, if not the longest quote from the Old Testament. But we should essentially see this quote in three parts. First, in verses 7 through 8, God promises a time when he will make a new covenant with his people. This was during the time of the old covenant that God promises a new covenant. Verse 9, God says that this new covenant will not be like the one he made with his people after the exodus from Egypt because they could not keep that covenant. That's the second movement. God's going to make a new covenant. It won't be like the old covenant because his people couldn't keep the old covenant. And then in verse 10 through 12, the third um, part of this promise, it it sort of details the uh, positive parts of the new covenant. In verse 10, God talks about the internal nature of this new covenant, right? How we can be God's people and how God will be our people and that there's this connection. In verse 11, God promises to know each of his covenant people. In verse 12, God promises mercy and forgiveness. And the emphasis here through it all is on God establishing a new relationship with his people, on God making a way for them to be right with him. And for all of this to be a part of what it means to be in God's covenant community. It's no longer about a covenant with a nation, but it's about a covenant with his people that extends far beyond any national boundaries. And there's so many implications to the fact that God is no longer making a covenant with any nation, but with his people. There's so much that could be said here. But part of what we need to see is that the new covenant was needed because the old covenant couldn't provide a way for permanent forgiveness of sins, for permanent reconciliation with God because the sacrifices had to be repeated over and over. And Jesus' covenant, the new covenant, is better because it promises permanent reconciliation. The new covenant was needed because the old covenant didn't provide the power that God's people needed to fulfill it. They constantly failed. But in the new covenant that Jesus establishes, 
There's the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells all of the members of the covenant community. And that gift of the Holy Spirit is better because not only do we know what to do, we have been given the power and the strength to do it. The new covenant was needed because the old covenant was never intended to be permanent. It was just intended to point to Jesus. The new covenant is better because it's permanent. Because Jesus has brought about the means by which we can all be permanently reconciled to God and permanently in a right relationship with God. As we draw to a close, uh, like I said, there's been a lot, but I want to draw out two ideas here as we come to the end of this. The first is this. What we find here with the idea of a new covenant and a new covenant community is perhaps the best summation of the essence of Christianity that can be found in the New Testament. Where we as Christians go wrong is identifying Christianity with external rituals or rules or activities or list of things that we should, should not do, can and cannot do. Right? Christian morality is certainly an important component of our faith. But the way we live should flow out of an already existing relationship with Jesus. A relationship of love and intimacy and forgiveness. It's the old saying that being precedes doing. We must be careful that in our zeal for doing what is right, that we not externalize our faith as if it can be reduced to where we go and what we do and what we watch and with whom we associate. The very basis of the new covenant is something internal brought about by what Christ did, not something external brought about by what we do. It's much easier to define our faith by do's and don'ts and things that we can and cannot do. It's much harder to live in an intimate relationship with Christ. The danger for the believers in Hebrews was to fall back to those old ways, those old rituals that were so comfortable. These are the things that I should and should not do. This is the way I should and should not worship. But instead, the reality of the new covenant faith is that it's intimate and it's personal and it's a relationship. And it's not something that's external that's based on a list of things to do and not do. Second, the idea of being personally connected to God, being personally related to, to God, can be a pretty confusing concept in and of itself. Right? I mean, the idea of covenant in and of itself, it's confusing. That's not normal language that we use. And especially if we don't come from a Christian background where this covenant of being in a relationship with God or this concept of being in a relationship with God is talked about over and over and over. It even could seem a little odd and weird. But Hebrews 8 goes a long way in helping us to see what that really is about. Hebrews 8.10 says, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that's really what it's about. Earlier, I mentioned how the creation story starts with God creating a place to dwell with his people. It just so happens that in the book of Revelation, the story ends at the same place. In Revelation 21.3, we see this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as 
their God. As confusing as a concept as this might be to grasp, the promise here is that God will be our God, that God will dwell with us. It's an incredible promise, but it's a promise that we actually get to experience now. We don't have to wait, actually. Like, what will come in, um, and what we will experience, right, in eternal perfection in the new heaven and new earth can already be our experience today. Because it's not just that God is God out there somewhere. It's not just that God exists. It's that he's my God. And I am his child. And Jesus enables this connection that would otherwise be impossible. As difficult as that is to grasp, as wild as it seems, that's what Hebrews 8 promises us. That's what the story of creation, I mean, that's what the the story of the whole Bible starts in creation with the promise of God being with his people. It ends with us being with God in a new heaven and a new earth and that promise to be with God, for him to dwell with us, for him to be our God and for us to be his people, for us to be his children is available now. So the call for us this morning is really simple. The call for us this morning is to lean into or to step into that relationship with God. If it's true that God possesses a strong desire to be with his people and to dwell with his people, and I think he does, I think that's the story of Scripture, then the invitation for us this morning is to meet God at the thrilling intersection of heaven and earth, to meet him in the person of Jesus. No matter how difficult it is to wrap our, hands, our heads around that concept, God truly does want to dwell with his people And he's made a way for that to happen. God truly does want to be connected to his people, and he's made a way for that to happen. And so the call for us this morning is to ponder that, to lean into that, to pursue the reality of God being our God and us being his people. Let's lean into that. Let's recognize that. Let's ponder that. Let's be thankful that God has made a way for that to happen. We're going to enter into a time of response here in just a moment. And one of the things that we do, I'll just go ahead and talk about it first, during our time of response is to take communion. It just so happens that when Jesus instituted the practice of communion in the New Testament, uh, he talked about it being a practice for the new covenant. Right? And so when we come in just a moment and we take the bread and we dip it in the wine or juice, and, and, and we remember what Christ has done, and we proclaim to one another that we believe it. We're remembering that new covenant that God has established with his people, that Jesus has made a way for us to be connected to God. That's literally what we're doing when we take communion. We're remembering that. We're proclaiming to one another that it's true and that it's good. And so in just a moment after I pray for us, I would invite you to come take communion, whether you're a member of Redemption or not. During this time as well, the band's going to come back up in just a second. Lead us in some songs. Give us an opportunity to worship that way. We have an opportunity to worship through giving. Uh, Most of us give in ways that are probably digital. um, But there's a giving basket in the back. And this is an opportunity for us to remember that our giving is actually an act of worship and an act of response to what God has done for us. So I'm going to pray for us. And we'll continue on with that time of response. God, thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that in Jesus we have a way to meet you. God, that in Jesus we have a way to be rightly related to you, a way for our sins to be taken away.
and for us to forever be in a permanent relationship, rightly reconciled to you. But God, I pray that for us that wouldn't be just an idea of something to come. God, I pray that that would be the reality of our lives. That we would pursue knowing you. That we pursue what it means to be intimately connected to you. God, that you would make yourself real to us. And that we would draw near to you because of Jesus. God, once again, thank you for Jesus, our great Savior. Our better high priest who stands in the gap for us continually and forever. God, thank you for that. May we now, as we take communion and respond, remember that new covenant that you've established through Jesus, that new way that we can be connected to you. God, we just ask all this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.